0: You're listening to Robert Wright's Non Zero Podcast.
1: Hi, John. Hi, Bob. Pleasure to meet you. Good to meet you. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non Zero Newsletter. This is the Non Zero Podcast. You are John Vervecki. Uh, among other things, the producer of a 50 part video series on YouTube called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Yes. which has got, gotten a lot of attention. You are recently on the Lex Friedman podcast, very high-profile venue. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and you are a, now you're at the University of Toronto, and you are a, uh, you call yourself a cognitive scientist. I gather your background is largely in philosophy.
0: Uh, philosophy and psychology, yes. Okay.
1: Uh, and um, so I want to talk about this meaning thing. Uh, I, I think, you know, a lot of people will recognize the problem you're talking about, or at least are familiar with some of the indices you cite of the mm-hmm. crisis, you know, higher suicide rate among young people. There, there are various signs of, you know, I mean, more more mass shootings and so on. Uh, you note that more and more people seem to need to Look for meaning in things like uh, video games, virtual worlds. Uh, yeah. I want to get to the question of whether that's kind of inherently a bad thing, or people can find meaning there. But anyway, there are a lot of uh, things you would cite as as evidence of the meaning crisis. Just, just quickly, are there a couple of big ones you you'd add to that? What What are the on your list? What are the like the next two or three? Um. Uh. You know.
0: Just the, you also get. Uh um, significant surveys. There was one done in the UK in 2019. 89% of people said that they they felt their lives were meaningless, um, um, which is significant. Um, you get uh, increased loneliness. Uh, the number of close friends that people have on average is declining uh, mm-hmm. consistently, even though we're more connected virtually. Um, the fact that we seem to uh, be in weird paradoxical states where everything is politicized, yet we all feel disenfranchised and uh, with the political system feel that it's largely not legitimate. Um, and so you've got this weird, you know, you've got polarization and, and gridlock, but pol- political intensification of everything. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's just one example of all these weird paradoxical things we're in that seems to uh, bespeak uh, 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 a system that's in criticality, that's breaking down in some important ways for people. I think there's also, I think we should note it's not just negative symptoms like that. This is work I've done with Christopher Master Pietro. There's also positive things um, that w- in which people are attempting to respond to these. I have criticisms of each one of these, but I do think they should be seen as positive responses rather than sort of symptomatic reactions. Things like the mindfulness revolution, I'm very aware, and I participated in the criticism of that like mindfulness. But, you know, the, revi- the revival of things like stoicism um, uh, 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 growing rapidly, both in terms of the books and the groups and the gatherings. Um, and the fact that meaning and wisdom are now hot academic topics, meaning in life and wisdom, I publish on them. And they weren't that even 10 years ago, I think is also a a significant. So so
1: your growing prominence is evidence of the meaning crisis. Not just mine, (laughs) but uh, it has its upsides. You're right. Uh, So I'd like to now now my sense and I do not uh, claim to be conversant in all 50 volumes of your uh, uh, of, of your video production or your worldview entirely. It's it's. You know, you have a kind of elaborate diagnosis, uh, and you have a kind of prescription, but it's not like a one true way prescription. I, I it's more like, it's more like whatever system of meaning you find, it's going to have to accomplish these things. You, you're kind of providing a checklist. So yes. the way the way I would like to start this is rather than than just des- describe that per se, or the diagnosis per se, uh, I I'd like you to tell us. Where you find meaning, the mm. ways you solve the problem, and and if possible, kind of relate that to the checklist. In other words, you know, here, here's I do I, I find meaning here, and here mm. is is kind of the thing on my meaning system checklist that this checks off. If that's not too simplistic a way to put it, if you know what I mean.
0: No, no, that's a very interesting framing of it. Um. Well, I mean, in one sense, I uh, I. Uh, I don't like some of the connotations of this, but I do practice what I preach. I do have an ecology of practices that I do every day. I have a, 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 I do a meditative practice, a contemplative practice. I do a mindful moving practice, combinations of t- Tai Chi Chuan, Ichuan and Zhen Zhang. I've been doing these for three decades. Um, um, Just out of
1: curiosity, how long does that take each day, the whole thing? Um, usually it takes about an hour and a half. Okay. Uh,
0: but but on some day, I also have a short routine I do when I'm crunched for time, and I can do that in forty five minutes. Um, so I have some flexibility ar- around that. Okay. Uh, and so and, and I won't go through the whole list, but what they're designed to do is address uh, a lot of the things that I talk about. They're try they're trying to give me um, practices that help me deal with self deceptive, self destructive behavior. Uh, practices that increase my uh, capacity to connect to myself, to other people, to the world, to get into the flow state as one example of that kind of enhanced uh, connectedness, but also get into it in a way that transfers to other domains of my life. I have dialogical practices that I do with other people. Um,
1: We're like, what does that mean?
0: So there's practices uh, uh, that uh, like circling practices, uh, a, a practice that I, I teach called Dialectic into Dialogos, Uh, which are ways in which people are communicating with each other, uh, not just simply to share information, uh, but to enhance the sense of uh, mutual connectedness so that they both start to experience insight. Um, um, They both get a a, a sense of opening up within and without. Um, I can get more specific, but... uh, Uh, And sometimes that's done with other people. Sometimes it's done with other people and a philosophical text in order to get people into a transformative way of reading. Um,
1: Okay. and what what problem is that solving or what what kind of specific void is that filling that for some people remains unfilled?
0: So uh, a lot of the uh, well, multiple. I mean, the one thing is it's overcoming those self-deceptive, self-destructive tendencies in our cognition that need to be addressed in, I think, a a, a a a with an ecology of practices. I don't think there's any panacea practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also enhancing the connectedness, that that sense of connectedness mm-hmm. that's at the core. If you do wor- wor- work on meaning in life, it's that sense of connectedness to yourself, to other people in the world. Many people, when they're in these practices, we just ran a workshop a couple of weekends ago, myself and uh, Guy Sendstock and Christopher Master Petro, where we took people through a sequence of Practices, And they keep saying things like, I, I didn't know this kind of intimacy was possible. Um, that's the, you, how they so try it's a, to.
1: It's a structured dialogue uh, of, of sorts where, I mean, what's the kind of thing that would happen in this dialogue? That like, oh, yeah, yeah, the, I, you I'm know, sure. a, an exchange that would be, that would, that I would, you know, be in awe of or something that would, that yeah. would open my eyes to something.
0: So what happens is um, in, in one practice, for example, we'll, uh, people will take, uh, will decide, they'll be in groups of four and they'll decide on a particular virtue. And what they'll do is you know, you'll start with the first person and they will propose. They don't state third person, they state first person. I propose that honesty is. And then they wow. try to make a proposal. The other person does two things. They first of all reflect back to them, making sure, am I understanding you correctly? And then, and then they also try to draw them out. They'll say things like, "You were circling your hand when you were doing that. What was going on when you were circling your hand? Can you go back and try and get access? What was it happening in addition to the verbal stuff? What was going on when you were doing this? Um, there was that part I didn't quite get. Could you go back and clarify?" So they're mm-hmm. they're trying to draw the person out more and more and more and more and more. And then what happens is they then will take up, there's a, more of a structure, So, but mm-hmm. they'll then take up that proposal and then they'll turn to another person and they will sort of jazz on it. They will say, I'm, I had some concerns, there were things missing in, that, in the previous proposal. Here's what I really liked about it. Here's what was missing. I propose to you and then they pick it up and then they do that same cycle. And you so is this all four people.
1: Is this among other things, a kind of a values clarification thing? I mean- People are positing certain values and virtues as being important, and then there's a dialogue. It's a little bit like a seminar.
0: It's it's there's a dialogue, but the point is the point is is to get people out of just a conceptual relationship. That's not being ignored, mm-hmm. uh, but it's to get people aware of you know procedural knowing, uh, uh, perspectival participatory. That's why virtues are chosen because they involve beliefs and skills and perspectives and traits.
1: Let me ask you just before we proceed, if this happens to touch on a hobby horse of mine, which is kind of, you know, cognitive empathy or perspective taking, just understanding the other person's perspective. Which I that's my own nomination for cure all. To as you know, if I could change one thing in the world to solve as many of the world's problems as possible, it would be to make people better at understanding what's going on in the minds of everyone—friends, enemies, frenemies, everyone. Um, and uh, and and it's not to be confused with emotional empathy, which is like feeling their pain. Although the two may be related and interact, uh, but yes. but just perspective taking is is this is that an important part of this exercise?
0: Very much so. I mean, uh, I, I participated with uh, uh, Igor Grossman and a host of sort of the 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 current research. Most of the current researchers doing work on wisdom today, and that meta perspectival ability is a crucial feature of wisdom especially as it helps people overcome their own bias egocentrism etc but it, it it is that empathy but it's also eduction right you're you're not only what's that it, word eduction to draw out to draw out um you're also helping the person become more so you're not just Empathizing with them, you're being something like a mindfulness mirror. You're reflecting back to them, so they can also see more deeply into themselves, and then mm-hmm. that ha- enhances your ability to empathi- empathetically pick up on them, and you can draw them out more. And you get this—you get this sort of shared flow state going.
1: Hey, here's a crazy idea. Is it possible for you to just like do this with me right now? Like say something you would say in a setting like this to try to get me to understand myself better or something? I'd love uh- to understand
0: myself. I- <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean it, it, we can try. I mean I I, I want I
1: we we generally uh, it depends on how crazy you think it is. I mean if nothing else it might give people an idea of what we're talking about. I, I doubt we'll see a miraculous transformation. No, because I've no. been yeah, I've been trying for a long time it, it seems hard. But uh yeah. go, but, but if you are go <laughs> yeah. ahead. Have at me. Well, no, the thing is I I
0: I want you to uh, I, it needs to start with you and you okay. need to take first person stance. Uh, and propose something. like So What do, what is it you want to bring into a proposal?
1: How about the thing I just said, that the key to solving the world's problems is to make people better at understanding how other people see the world. Right.
0: And, and so when you're saying that, you're holding yourself like this. Um, and, and, and I've been holding like-
1: myself like this the whole time. So I right. think that's like a not a very valuable variable.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. But why not?
1: Uh, because I think if it says anything, I think it says two things. One is you can't see it, but I'm not on a chair. Okay, oh, I'm on one of these kneeling things. That, okay. that that could be related. There's also the fact that yeah, I, I I think the fact that I've been doing this for for much of the conversation says that it, if it says anything. If this posture says anything, it's not saying anything about the proposition I just put forth, but about how I feel when I have these conversations online. It could say something about that.
0: Right. And you just broke it. And that's what I wanted to happen. You opened up and you did this.
1: Right. And what do you think? And what do you think that means? I mean, I was trying to make a point emphatically uh, and and people do that. uh, But is
0: is that exemplifying the very thing you're after?
1: Is that exemplifying perspective taking? I doubt it. I mean, it, I think it exemplifies, you know, there are. What, what, is it you
0: th- to, what is it you wanted to get from me when you did that?
1: Uh, I think I wanted to emphasize a point, if anything, my speculation would be, I mean, you know, sometimes you're talking and you realize you're using your hands or yes. you go back and you look at a video of yourself and you realize, well, you used your hands here. And usually that signifies to some degree the the uh, uh, the intensity of your feeling about what you're saying or how how much you want to get it across. Like I'm holding. My, yeah, I'm, yeah. Like I'm yeah. holding my physical. Look, this is interesting. Yeah, Uh, I I, it's an exercise I've never done. And I I love to think about myself. So, uh, you know, it's also interesting as a as a study in I mean, I was actually looking at your video and uh, I was thinking, well, these videos are doing well and you use your hands a lot. Okay, so you, you bring energy to your message. Yes. And that's good. But but now we're veering onto another subject and you might I it might be that what I'm actually doing here is trying to change the subject because <laughs> we're so <laughs> close to hitting home about some like deeply sensitive aspect of my psyche. That could be what's going on.
0: Well, I don't want to push it if you don't want to, but push I push
1: anything. If- I'm I'm <laughs> totally transparent. I i like there's already so much damning information about me in my conversations on the internet. The last thing we need to do is worry about uh lowering people's opinion of me.
0: So what do you think about that, that you were, and you've become very gestural now, and that's really cool, and and you're picking up, and it sort of led to a bit of self-intensification. Do you think that might play any role in enhancing cognitive empathy, bringing in the uh, extra dimensions of communication between people?
1: Uh, Interesting question. I mean, you know, my own view, it's funny, I just, last night published a thing in the non-zero newsletter about Putin and Hitler. And like, is there a danger if you try to put yourself in their shoes and and exercise cognitive empathy, of wind up sympathizing with them and their cause. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, separately, but relatedly, there's a guy who did a Twitter thread on me complaining that I don't know enough about Russia to keep trying to figure out what's going on in Putin's head. I don't know enough about I don't yes. have enough information. And my reply to that is going to be if I ever get around to replying. I think the main impediments to cognitive empathy usually are not a lack of information per se or at least that's not the first problem. They are um, they are emotional. They are about your attitude toward the person.
0: Right, right, right,
1: right. You know what I mean? I mean it's like yeah. and there are famous cognitive biases that I think are relevant, like attribution error. Yes. uh, You know, like how we how we naturally think about the motivation of enemies as opposed to allies. And and, and in both cases, they can cloud your view of what's really going on in their head. Same with your kids. It's like you're very sympathetic, maybe too sympathetic to understand what's Mm -hmm. going on in their head and so on. So my, my, my view is that the main impediment to cognitive empathy, the first impediment is emotion. Now, overcoming that can open you to more information. Information, you know, you want more information, but it's not like an expertise problem, I I think. In the first instance, like, if we're having trouble understanding why Putin invaded Ukraine, I don't think it's an expertise problem, okay? That, first and foremost. Anyway, that's a roundabout way. I'm just giving you my view Yes. uh, on... things (laughs) things <laughs> like, and i just and i know you're noting that i just put my hand on yeah. my chest because yeah. i was saying like my view right yes. it, it, it's uh it's uh i don't know what do you make of all this
0: well uh, just, just what suddenly happened there there was a tremendous flow and you really started and then you gave you came very involved and i asked you now to imagine two people doing that more and more in sync with each other and you can get into a very powerful sense of connectedness but you do it in a place that is structured and there's two other people watching you so that you can also try to keep people aware of the way in which they might be trying to bias or skew things mm-hmm. and that's a way of giving people something like a martial arts dojo in which they can practice i think uh, if i understand you correctly part of what you're talking about which is this cognitive empathy i think they're also practicing developing their own self-awareness and their own cognitive flexibility in conjunction with that. That's the kind of thing that you're doing in these practices.
1: Okay. Well, that's interesting. And I might, you know, separately like to like to pursue that with you and and and, and, yeah. and learn more about it. Uh, so let's get back on that. So, so on the larger issue of the crisis of meaning, let me describe a diagnosis that I think is different from yours Sure. And uh, have you respond? Sure. Which is, it's kind of less. Uh, it's more pedestrian, you might say. Uh, I mean, so a lot of people, like for example, you're probably familiar with the book Bowling Alone, right? Big. Mm-hmm. It, it was a big bestseller uh, decades ago. Uh, this guy Robert Putnam uh, came out. With well, he noticed that there weren't as many bowling leagues as there used to be. And he turned this into more of a metaphor than than probably an important index. But but the idea was we don't have enough community. You know, yeah. we don't get together and, and 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 do do communal things that bring us satisfaction. And I think it's possible to describe a lot of the problem in these you might say relatively mundane terms. In other words, you just ask like, well, what kind of animals are we, right? Like we were created by natural selection. We have certain needs. We need to eat. We need to, you know, and, and there, there's a number of things that if if we don't have them, it's certainly including community, a sense of a sense of purpose in some sense, right? And a sense that we're appreciated for contributing something, you know, uh, to, to the world. Uh, and ideally, important deep friendships Ideally, perhaps an enduring romantic relationship. Anyway, th- th- there's there's this set of what you might call uh, needs. I suppose you could talk about Maslow, whatever. But anyway, these these um, for the most part you might call them pedestrian in, in, in the sense that they're uh, you don't need to get all mystical and cerebral to think about them. They're just things people need. Now, separate from that, there had traditionally been, of course. Religion and for many people still is and mm. and the way I would put it is that that helps with a couple of other things first of all reassures you about death right uh that's nice um I know Lex Friedman asked you about this and you got heavily into to what extent the fear of death uh, motivates people and so on uh I share some of what I think is your skepticism about how uh, pervasively, an important f- uh, factor that 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 is. But that aside, um, religion also gives people a a clear moral foundation. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. We don't need to have a seminar on moral realism and metaethics, uh, which uh, seminars which usually leave you unsure as to whether there is an actual, you know, bedrock foundation for any moral system. Here, here it is. So you don't have to worry about that. It, it allows you to know for sure whether you're doing good or bad. Great. So I would say on the one hand, you have these, these needs that are uh, you know, fairly fairly straightforward and mundane. On the other hand, you have these things religion has done for people, which for a lot of people it's no longer doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh so I I would kind of divide the problem like that. And I think that's That's different from what you do. I mean, you certainly you talk about Nietzsche, the death of God and and that. Mm -hmm. But you your framework isn't exactly that, right?
0: Um, It overlaps with it. Um, I I mean, a lot of the framework is about rejecting the idea of a meaning of life as some sort of metaphysical mandate and pursuing. And this is why the, the distinction is invoked in psychology, meaning in life. Which are some of those uh, dimensions of connectedness that you talked about? Um, you know, we need to we need to be connected to other people, and uh, in a way in which we feel that we matter, uh, that we make a difference to something that has a value um, and a reality independent of our own egocentric perspectives. Um, this is. Uh, this is, you know, the main argument by meaning in life is not reducible to morality. It's because it's not just about uh, the reduction of harm or the promotion of well-being uh, unless you broadly construe it to mean also just this uh, this capacity to maintain the well-functioning of your cognitive agency, which I think meaning in life ultimately points to. I think the reason why these motivations are strong for us is precisely because of a couple of main factors. One is, the very complex dynamics, and uh, and they're not just within the brain, they're, with, they're between the brain and the world that make us adaptively intelligent, and you invoked it a few minutes ago, make us perennially susceptible to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. And many religions have... Developed the colleges and practices, mindfulness and ritual to get you out of egocentrism, all kinds of other things, confession, you know, a whole myriad of, and as you rightly note, I'm not advocating any one of them. I'm talking mm-hmm. about their functionality, right, for addressing that self-deceptiveness, um, for ameliorating um, our capacity to be uh, trapped in kind of parasitic cognitive processing. And so I think that is a need. And, uh, and you know, you can talk about variations amongst the religions, but they all have like this important mindfulness component, usually when they've been functioning well, etc. I think that's an important function. I don't think that in this sense, wisdom is optional for you. I think you need a whole ecologies of practice for helping ameliorate that self-deception and enhance the connectedness. Now, I do think that goes into another important thing, which is, uh social interfacing most of our problem solving is not done as individuals it's done by plugging into the power of collective intelligence distributed cognition in fact that shows up in a bias people will confuse possessing a book or 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 distributing something on the internet to actually possessing the knowledge because the interface function is so prominent and important uh, for our cognitive functioning And I think one of the things that you have to do is do kind of like what we did a few minutes ago. Uh, Well, how are we caring for and taking care of that interface function? I think our culture is doing a a crappy job of that right Mm -hmm. now uh, and has been doing it for a long time. I think religions used to do that. And I don't know if they do it well anymore. That's part of the critique. Um, So I think in addition to what you said about the mattering and the connectedness, I think um, religions have also functioned uh, to help us cultivate wisdom, both individually and collectively, and I don't think that is optional for us either. I think we need to do that. Now,
1: what can, can I would we, want. To, go I ahead. mean, uh, don't forget what you're going to say. But can we drill down a little on the wisdom thing? I mean, I think I think by wisdom you don't mean just propositional wisdom, like the Book of Proverbs, oh. right? So what's oh, no. what's an example of someone uh, gaining a wisdom kind of wisdom they didn't have, or or manifesting wisdom, or Sure. or ideally, the way one of these practices uh that you you practice or advocate would would even contribute to that but but and it,
0: excellent 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 so let let's talk about this and and this this is a model that uh um uh has been around uh for a bit now in in cognitive, in the cognitive psychology of wisdom but to so think about first. Um, just a, a an insight. um and let's make it not just purely cognitive to open it up the way you're suggesting. When you say something like, Oh, oh my, oh, you have that aha moment, I thought she was angry, but she's afraid. I've been misframing this entirely. I have to reframe this. And I'm changing what I find salient and relevant. Mm-hmm. and i uh, and w- we can come back to that. I think that relevance realization is the key function of our our cognition. We can but now, think about that's one shot insight but you can also have an insight that is more systematic um and this is the proposal for what goes on for example in 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 cognitive development you have an insight not into just this problem but there's a whole bunch of problems and you get an insight that binds them together and then you get an insight into a kind of problem a whole system of problems and it starts to inter and permeate many more domains of your life because of that and you see child children going through this like Overcoming you know conservation problems in general and I, and it doesn't happen like that like an insight it, but it's this Co- ca-
1: conservation eight. problems in the sense of oh so when you when you you
0: like you you take a like a four year old uh, a four year old and you you count out five candies, one, two, three, four, five, oh. and you count out one, two, three, four, five, and, and they and you say which one do you want, and they pick the bottom row because it's taking up more space mm. they haven't figured out that okay. many problems require not just one variable but an interaction of variables mm-hmm. like all the empty space is empty candy sorry most of the extra space is empty candy space right, right. Uh, right. empty of candy okay. Um, okay. and so right and so you can get and that's a that's a qualitative shift and now they are now enabled not just in gathering more information but gathering more kinds of information in a profound way and they have seen through a kind of systemic and systematic illusion that they've been suffering under. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they they see more deeply into reality. And I think that is the fundamental thing I'm talking about when you, and, and therapy often tries to bring this about when it's successful. It tries to get you, you often have these sets of complaints that are propositionally often accurate. But what's missing is they have not been brought together into a system that you can intervene in in a coordinated manner because the person is lacking the non propositional knowing. They're lacking the procedural skills. They're lacking the perspective taking ability. They're Mm -hmm. lacking the ability of being able to transform their identity. They have to give up identifying with this and identifying with that. And that kind of comprehensive transformation, especially the non propositional that affords us. Seeing through these comprehensive illusions and more deeply into reality, overcoming self-deception in that way that's what I would call mm-hmm. wisdom
1: so this this is uh really important to you this business of self- deception like getting a clearer view of the world in many senses is pretty central to your program and in that you know you agree with i I would think a number of Buddhist thinkers a number of yeah. all kinds of thinkers uh i mean it sounds like you 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 view the problem very broadly. I mean, for example, so here's a, a kind of lack of clarity that I think is probably built into us by natural selection. So we tend to overestimate the speed of oncoming objects. You can imagine why that would be the case, right? Better safe than sorry. Get better to get out of the way. Think it's coming faster than it is. To under then to underestimate the speed. Uh, that's and then there's another kind of problem where like. I think I'm a better person than I am, right? That's a famous bias. We all, the, the average yeah, person yeah. thinks they're morally better than the average person. Well, somebody's wrong, right? Yes, yes. And, and apparently most of us are. Uh, and those are two very different kinds of self-deception. Yes. To me, the first kind, which I would think is more like the candy kind you just described, is a, in a very separate category and, fra- and and not all that important, Right. Uh, to, in my mind, like I, I'm perfectly happy to overestimate the speed of oncoming objects. Uh, and in general, the kind of perceptual, the optical illusion type distortions and so on. So but but it's it almost sounds like you're viewing these things as in a way less separate and kind of comprehensively important. In other words, you're, you're like clarification project works on all fronts. Is that, is that right?
0: It doesn't, I wouldn't want to make a claim for those things that are not cognitively penetrable, like the perceptual illusions. Now, the interesting thing about the candies is they are cognitively penetrable when the right conditions ensue. Um, Do I think that that's um, uh, uh, similar enough to the kind of problems that human beings face in um, trying to realize? How they're misframing their identity in their life, I think it is uh, using the same kind of cognitive mechanisms uh because the 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 the, the empirical data set uh, suggests that the what what both things are making use of are abilities of cognitive flexibility restructuring connecting things that were previously remotely unconnected from each other, et cetera et etc so um i i i i would i would agree with you that I think the the, the persistent cognitively impenetrable things I'm not talking about those mm-hmm. but the ones that are cognitively penetrable they think they're important and are grouped together precisely because they are all cognitively penetrable and are systematic in an important way
1: and and, and certainly I, I gather you'd say that my coming to realize on a day-to-day basis that I'm actually not as good relative to the other average person as I thought I was my, my coming to have a more realistic view of, of my actual, virtues, whatever, that's part of wisdom, right? It is.
0: But think about what that means. It it surely means a lot more than asserting with conviction the truth of the proposition you just uttered. mm -hmm. It requires cultivating skills that enact it. It requires you actually being able to take perspectives that make it reliably salient and important to you. And it requires you actually transforming the very processes by which you identify with yourself. So it involves a lot of non-propositional cultivation. And I think that's key for two reasons. That's mm-hmm. pro- properly how wisdom is different from sort of propositional knowing. And those non-propositional processes are also the same processes, I would argue, with evidence, that where most of that sense of connectedness is being generated.
1: Mm-hmm. But it is a way to put that, what you just said, uh, it involves living as if you believed the proposition.
0: Yes, but let's remember that we even make this distinction between believing that and believing in, and we're trying to capture something there. And, and believing, you know, believe originally meant giving your heart to. We, I, I don't. Uh, I don't want it to. I, I agree with you as long as we take away from that the air of sort of, of sort of mere pretense. Right. It's not pretense. It's it's more like the serious right. play that a child engages in when they are right. trying to go through cognitive development.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's like. I would say, I mean, an example is the way I feel at the end of like a silent meditation retreat, especially if it's gone kind of well. In other words, I, I don't have to go around thinking, uh, well, you shouldn't judge people on first impression. Um, you, you know, uh, hey, you're not more important than everybody else. You're almost just living a little, you're almost feeling as if that's the case. It, it's almost, it's almost built into your perception of the world. You know what I mean? Uh, yes,
0: exactly. To the degree to which it's cognitively penetrable. it is gets built into your perception of the world. You start to live as. But it's not just the one-sided. Uh, I, 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 I assume that this is your experience too. When I do these, aspects of the world that were previously hidden to me also get disclosed to me. And I start to see things and realize things in both senses of the word, become aware, and they become real for me, right? So the world also opens up to me in those states too, and I and so there are now affordances of connectedness that were not available to me before.
1: Connectedness
0: with other people, other people, and even in your environment. I When I come uh-huh. out of those, I I feel more connected. I see patterns yeah. in 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 the natural oh. world, the right. social oh. world, etc.
1: Right, I, and I think some Buddhists might say that that's related to. A kind of less strong uh, or sense of self, or a less possessive sense of self. Right? There's a there's a there's a more um, the the self, the borders of the self are a little more permeable.
0: Exactly. And so, Bob, what I'm suggesting to you is that, and we can argue about whether or not Buddhism's a religion or not. But what I'm suggesting to you is that those kinds of transformative functions. Are not typically had at going to your bowling league, right? So I, I agree right. that the community building aspects, but I'm also arguing for this important transformational dimension that religions also have traditionally performed for us.
1: Right. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, as for Buddhism, I would say on the one hand in Asia, there's a lot of very traditionally religious stuff, belief in deities, prayers and yeah, so yeah. on, that that in the West, a lot of people, they don't realize how much a part of Buddhism in Asia that is, because we have focused on the, the philosophical yeah. part, the certain kinds of practices that you can think of as secular, and so on. I mean, I would say related to that, though, uh, I'm not sure that what you just described has really been central to religion by and large. I mean, I grew up in a very traditionally religious household, Southern yes. Baptist, Southern Baptist, and it's like, You know, gave you a clear sense of right and wrong, strong incentive to do right, good because you get to heaven. And, of course, I was thinking of this as a child thinks of it. Granted, not the most mature uh, theological apprehension available, but uh, but also the community. The the community. You're with people who share your values, and you come and you do these rituals that, uh, you know, kind of consecrate the relationships and so on. And, you know, it wasn't, uh, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I would, I guess what I would, good question. I'm just thinking through to what extent was was the wisdom merely propositionally imparted? Uh, you know, there are these these verses.
0: Bob, if I could intervene. Yeah. There, there's a bias. Yeah. there. I was brought up in the same situation, so I'm not criticizing you uniquely.
1: Spe- specifically what situation? Uh, I mean, Protestant, Protestantism, which okay. is
0: scripture over sacrament. Uh-huh. I mean, it was born out of a rejection of a of a, of a lot of the ritual aspects um and and i don't think it's representative of most of the history of christianity is what i'm saying
1: okay could be on the other hand i well who knows it's a complicated subject i'm just i was reflecting on the fact that you know i was aware of propositions related to the practices we're describing such as jesus saying you know, don't look at the moat or the speck in the in the other person's eye. Look at the beam or the log in your own eye. I mean yeah, you're yeah. you're you're more just you're at least as deceived as anybody else. Focus on that. That's your problem. Um, and you know it had an effect. but you know, it is more propositional in the way it was imparted.
0: Uh, It it was, and I agree with that. Uh, But I mean, there there still was the singing and there there still was a a lot of... uh, 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 And and there's variation uh, even within Protestants. I mean, so if you go to a Pentecostal service... Yeah. There is much more emphasis on transformative experience, even within a Protestant framework. So that there is considerable variation, uh, yeah. even with Protestantism. Okay,
1: so I I side, I got you derailed a long time ago, and, and it was in the course of uh, responding to my characterization of one view of this as, okay, you have these mundane needs, community, and so on. We used to have traditional religion, reassures you about death, gives you a firm moral foundation how does your view differ from that kind of dichotomous rendering of the problem? Um, Do you have anything else you wanted to add to how your view is different?
0: No, I mean, I just wanted to do, uh, I I, I wanted to also ask another, answer another question you answered. Okay. The the main point I'm making is I agree with all uh, the moral education and, and the community building, but I'm also trying to add this sapiential transformative aspect to it. And that's why, Many religions have a strong mystical tradition within them. doesn't mean everybody's a mystic in the tradition, but mm-hmm. there are mystical traditions within, emphasizing that transformational dimension. Um, and you you wanted to say, can, can you give me an example? Well, I do what I consider a ritual practice involving a lot of this non-propositional stuff. One of them is Tai Chi Chuan. And Tai Chi Chuan gets me into the flow state in a very powerful way. But what was interesting is that other people, before I noticed it in myself, Other Mm -hmm. people were noticing and they didn't, didn't, you didn't know I was doing Tai Chi. This was already in grad school. They came to me and they say, what's, what's going on with you? You're way more balanced in how you argue with people. You're way more flexible. You're you're way more like, and I realized that the things I had been practicing in the ritual, the ritual was not only designed to get me into those states, but to cultivate traits that were transferable to other situations and started to ameliorate a lot of Well, the self-deceptive and self-destructive behavior I had been engaging in in graduate school. You asked Mm -hmm. me to give you an example of one of my practices and how it did that. And that's an example I'm just giving you.
1: Okay. Um, Let me ask you about another kind of, uh, I guess, mundane description of the source of of a lot of the problem, which is that it seems to me technology is changing the landscape of our existence very fast. Now, for a long time, technology has been moving at some pace and people have made social adaptations to the change. For example, like 150 years ago, whatever, uh, the Industrial Revolution is moving a lot of Americans from farms into cities. New environment. uh, It's like, whoa, what do I do here? I used to have this clear set of friends. You saw new institutions arise, like the YMCA and and, and these various things. and, And ultimately, I don't know, things like, I guess, the Kiwanis Club or the whatever, but but you had these kinds of, you know, uh, venues for fellowship that, that were created. Now, things were moving really slowly then compared to today. I mean, we have seen in the last 20 years, I, I mean, first of all, it was about 20 years ago that the internet, you know, just the World Wide Web became clearly this huge thing. And then you had social media and so on. and And, I mean, I'm concerned that, things just may be moving too fast for for adaptation to happen for us to to uh you know because social media it's a bizarre way for a, for a, for a kid in high school i mean i saw it with my kids it's like facebook hit and they're and they're in adolescence and i think they they survived okay but it's this whole new world we haven't figured out the rules we're all familiar now with some of the kinds of damage it can do uh, and now we're moving on to other stuff. it's It's like, you know, so mm-hmm. to to what extent is is this part of the the problem? is your velocity of change?
0: I think it's an accelerant on the meaning crisis, and I've been arguing that. and And I think one of the telling failures of the legacy religions, legacy from the axial age, is their incapacity to offer any kind of deep. Uh, and sustained response to this. I'm not saying individuals who have a religious framework aren't doing that, they are. But I don't see Christianity or 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 or, or Islam or Buddhism or Taoism coming up with um, uh, a, a concerted and comprehensive response to this complexification problem that we're facing. Um, and um, I think that is telling uh, uh, in that when you take a look at the nuns, N-O-N-E-S-es, The ones who have no, and they're 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 a large demographic, and they're the fastest growing demographic. They will probably, it's a probabilistic prediction, but they will probably overtake, you know, people who belong.
1: And and to finish your sentence, they profess no religious affiliation on the surveys. That's right, right. but that doesn't mean they're sort of
0: typically, um, uh, what you might call sort of Sam Harris atheists or something like that. Uh, By and large, they describe themselves with this very nebulous. spiritual, but not religious in which they, and Mm -hmm. and they're seekers. Um, Which means, and if you ask them, why do you, why aren't you taking up one of the legacy religions? You don't get typically, you know, you'll get occasionally, but typically you do not get, well, I have a problem with God and the existence of evil, or I have this. No, they, they don't invoke standards of truth. They invoke standards of relevance, they say it's just not relevant. I, I it, it, it's just it doesn't live for me. I don't I don't get anything when I'm there, right? Because they have by and large not gone through some kind of fundamental restructuring to address the challenges that are now most pertinent in many people's lives. But that doesn't mean that wisdom has become non-optional for these people. They are still engaging in all kinds of practices, sometimes really autodidactic messes, but they are trying to get that transformative dimension activated in their life. And, And they're willing to risk that and all the mistakes possible therein because they find the legacy religions are not making themselves... Like, like, you know, when when James talks about something being like a vital option that really can grab you and draw it's, you in and w- promise w- you. William James, right? Yeah, William James, exactly. That's the telling thing. So I totally agree with what you're saying. I think it's an accelerant, and I, but I think there's two sides in which it's a accelerant. One is the active side, right? In which it is precisely performing a, a challenge to our evolvability. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, 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 but it's also a reactive side in that the legacy religions are not stepping up to help people address this concern.
1: Yeah, and I, guess, I guess one question is whether the solutions will emerge from just wholly new sources and uh, or, or not. And, and you know, well, it looks like you wanted to say something to that. Well, because I I,
0: I, I'm doing a lot of right. Uh, again, I try to put my mouth where my, where, you know, w- w- I try to put my action where my mouth is. Uh, I am doing a lot of participant observation. I'm going into these new emerging communities with new ecologies of practices in which their people are putting together various practices to try and address what we're talking about. And I'm participating in them. I'm doing pilot studies, I'm asking questions, I'm trying to do the anthropological thing of going through the transformation. I'm trying to answer that question you just posed to me in the most responsible way I think I can. I'm, tr- I'm looking, I'm, I'm participating, I'm reflecting on it. Because, like, are we seeing the birth of some new thing that's sort of like a religion but not mm-hmm. a religion? That's what I sometimes call it as a placeholder, the religion that's not a religion. And I do think it's reasonable to say right now that something like that is emerging and coalescing.
1: Now, it's interesting you said the religion. You didn't say are we emerging? seeing the emergence of a lot of different things that will work yes. for different people. I mean, do you sense the possibility— of a kind of a unifying as well as unified spiritual worldview,
0: I, I, I see it more like um, the pluralism you uh, that you referred when you were talking about how I don't say there's the way. There's something more mm-hmm. like a meta curriculum. In fact, I was at I was in Vermont. In August, meeting with many of the leaders of these emerging communities for the expressed attempt to try to put together a meta-curriculum. Not this is the one way, but mm-hmm. here are design principles for any good ecology of practices. Here's vetting principles, how we can guard and check on each other. So no one community falls prey to the guru. Like all of that is happening. I'm participating in it. That doesn't mean that it, there's a teleology in it, it's necessarily. Going to happen, but I think there's a real possibility here for that kind of pluralistic meta curriculum for how to cultivate a, 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 an ecology of practices within a community, and how for how those communities to constellate together into a community of communities. That's a real possibility right now.
1: Okay, is it possible to identify some contemporary movements that would feed kind of most directly into that? If you know what I mean. It like like does it draw heavily on mindfulness? Is it related to the so-called sense making community, which I don't really understand clearly? But yeah. uh, but I think you've you've maybe you have a little bit of a connection to that, or yes. I, I mean, I know yeah. you were. Uh, I think you were, yeah, David Fuller did a thing with you. Is that right? Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I thought, well, what's the interview? You know, you know, the decoding the gurus uh, guys did a thing in, on a conversation with you and somebody else that I thought that was nice mediated, that that I thought nice was yeah, mediated yeah. by David Fuller, but maybe I got it wrong. The yeah. uh, um, uh, So anyway, uh, and actually there's a question raised in the course of that that I may get to, but, but go ahead and, you understand what the question is? Is, is yes. it, it okay? So, what's what's the answer? So, so
0: the answer is what, what's going on is both a desire and a momentum towards making those connections. I was just at a conference in Thunder Bay called the Consciousness and Conference uh, Conscience Conference, and there's a lot of this coming together. Uh, people from these various communities. Um, uh, so, I guess sense,
1: what are the main communities is part of my they're, question. They're,
0: they're, so, there's there's a lot. There yeah, there are communities. Um, around uh, mindfulness, but there's also communities around, but they overlap. There's mindfulness movement, but particularly mindful movement. Um, and so those communities are talking more and more to each other. Uh, there's overlap w- with people coming out of the rationalist community wanting yeah. to increase and improve. The, the, people like that were there, people like were there when I went, went and did uh, Rafe Kelly's Return to the Source. Uh, so you have people coming in from parkour but wanting to take it deeper into the cultivation of wisdom people coming out of the rationalist community and wanting to get more embodied and they're meeting together at Rafe kelly's return to the source and they're finding that they have a lot to say to each other there's the did you say hard
1: did you say hardcore and parkour parkour
0: oh and then what is that uh parkour is a way of uh, uh sort of uh moving very rapidly and Sort of acrobatically, mm. and gymnastically through an environment, and what Rafe Kelly has done—it it grew up in an urban environment okay. uh, as a response to people feeling sort of ghettoized, and it sort huh. of helped them open up. But then, if you take that and do it in nature, you also get the nature connectedness with the opening up experience, and then you get the cerebellar cortex loop running because you're doing all this—you know, movement. To, I did it. And man, Uh like, I I don't know how else to describe it, Bob, but the phenomenology is sort of the geometry, the geometry, the space of your cognition opened up after you've done like a week of that. You just become capable of thinking um, and sort of a kind of flexibility that you weren't. Uh There's an acceptation process that goes on. Um, And so there's that. There's people, like I said, coming out of the authentic relating uh, movement, all these dialogical practices. There's people coming out of the revival of Stoicism. There's people who are coming out of this renewed interest in non-propositional knowing, especially symbolic knowing. All of that, all of them are coming together in important ways.
1: Now, this embodied cognition thing is related, right? Which I gather yeah. you're you're big on? Yes, very big on. 4E cognitive
0: science, the idea that cognition is inherently embodied, embedded, enacted, and extended. Yes, very hmm. much.
1: I, I, I haven't totally wrapped my mind around that. I I mean it's uh it makes sense to me i mean you know a practitioner of mindfulness would at a minimum be aware of the extent to which uh you know feelings are embodied different feelings reside in different parts of your body and how connected they are to your cognitive your thoughts and how they shape thoughts and respond to thoughts and and all of that is that that's part of it
0: but there's more think about this um so you're you're in seated meditation and Uh, And normally they drop this off a lot of fMRIs, which is uh, really misleading. But when you have more extensive fMRIs and other things, the cerebellum is firing like crazy when people are meditating. Now, why is the cerebellum, which has to do with balance and the coordination of movement, firing when you're absolutely still and you're not doing much? And the proposal, and this is moving towards consensus, by the way, it was radical when I started teaching about this, is the cerebellum has been exacted for sensory motor coordination and navigation into more phenomenological and conceptual navigation. Read Barbara Tversky's book, Mind in Motion, that the machinery that we cultivate and and develop for physical navigation gets exacted up as we move around in uh, as we navigate conceptual space and phenomenological space, that's why we do this thing that we're doing right now, by the way, the gesturing,
1: okay. Uh, quick question related to that decoding the guru's thing um before I get back to what I hope will be on track. Um the uh, so there was an what they did was they excerpted a conversation of you talking to a guy who wants to take the word demons pretty seriously, but it wasn't so clear whether he meant it metaphorically. Like, you know, like if I have a drug addiction, you can think of that as a demon. Uh, and you can think of it as a demon, but that's not, but there's a metaphorical way of thinking of it. And there's a literal way of thinking of it. And 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 it raises a, a question, which is, I, I think there's, there's an approach to bringing meaning to people's lives that involves, resurrecting the terminology of religion even though it doesn't mean the things it meant in traditional religion i get a little of this from jordan peterson even it's like yes we can use the word god and you say well what do you mean by god and it's like i can't even understand what he says after that uh, you know and and which is you know true of you know you could just say liberal theology broadly but um But anyway, you know, you know what? uh, uh, That that was one thing. Now, now, demons, it may just be practically useful in overcoming an addiction to think of it as an animate threat because we are humans are are designed to deal with animate threats. Maybe there's that. But that aside, uh, what do you think of? Do you know what I mean? This business of kind of resurrecting the language, even though the language no longer means the reassuring things it meant. Right. Is that? Is that useful? I, I'm skeptical of that.
0: Um, it depends. Uh, I mean, um, Jonathan um, is arguing for something between the metaphorical and the literal. Which now he that's means. the
1: demon guy, Jonathan... Jonathan Pajot.
0: Jonathan okay. Pajot, good friend of mine. Um, he's arguing for something in between what we typically mean by merely metaphorical and literal, which he calls the symbolic. And the whole idea of the symbolic is... Um, That it is pointing to real patterns that are often only accessible uh, through an imaginal way. Uh, You said, like, uh, think about IFS. You know, one of the which stands for internal family systems therapy. I've been through it. Participant observation, where what you do to do is you you try you you learn when there's there's sort of inner conflict, you try and allow the part that you are in conflict. And I have to do this because that's part of what gets called into question by this practice. You are in dialogue with it and you sort of, you you personify it to agree and you enter into a, a dialogue with it and very powerful results can come out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, let, let's, let let, let, let let me try and first argue on Jonathan's behalf. Give me a moment and then I'll try and, and then address your question. So is it becoming a plausible uh, case within, you know, you know, bona fide uh, mainstream cognitive science uh, that there is a collective intelligence uh, shared by distributed cognition that's not just the sum of the individual um, agents' intelligence. This, yes, this is
1: a result of human intellectual collaboration, or like yes. like like, if, like General Mo- General Motors is a collective intelligence, they, right?
0: But, but also the idea that there's a synergistic effect; it's not just an additive effect. Um, right. And mm-hmm. so you have this collective intelligence, and yeah. and 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 I've published on this recently. Dan Shapi and I we talked about the NASA scientists, right, and, and and moving the rovers around on Mars and how they form with the rovers this overall system that is actually doing um, the navigation of the rover and the science. So, are, is it pos- Is it becoming reasonable that there's a collective agent and a kind of we agency? This is taken very seriously. Is it possible that people had sort of a a symbolic sense of this in the past and talked about it in terms of God? Well, that's an old, that's an old hypothesis. That's Durkheim. Again, that's nothing radical that people personified this in order to interact with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and And there's probably good reasons why personification and narrative actually get your cognition in the right way for tracking very complex dynamical systems. Now, does Jonathan think, that they are real beyond all of that. At times I hear him saying no, at times I'm hearing yes, and I'm trying to get clear about that. If you ask me, do I think these demons or angels exist without human beings, I give a very clear no. I do not think they do. But I do not think we are just speaking metaphorically. We are trying to use something, to point to something. I would put it to you that in some sense, that's what people, this is the Durkheimian people, uh, Proposal. That's what people were doing in the past too. They 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 weren't just met. They weren't just fiction, right, that was reassuring. That it also put them into contact with real dynamical systems, real you know uh, super personal collective intelligence in a way that was facilitatory for them. And so, I don't think it's completely de novo that we're using you know, words like demon and angels to talk about mm-hmm. these things. Uh, and and then is, is it possible that we're tapping we're we're doing something that we always do with the meaning of terms, we're picking up on one dimension that's always been prominent or always been present, sorry, and making it more prominent now. Yeah, and that's a legitimate thing to do. We do that in science. We do that in religion. Now, the that so the question becomes a very messy, difficult question about how can you tell whether or not we are doing that legitimately or not. And I agree with you. That's a very hard question. And I I, I don't have a clear answer to you other than I keep trying my very best to participate in good faith dialog with all of these people to see if I can take their perspective. And Mm -hmm. I don't mean in a pretentious way. I mean in an authentic and respectful way in order to answer that question. And I don't think that like groups like Decoding the Gurus understand how much this requires participant observation. If you're going to make an actual authentic critique, I'm not accusing you of anything, Bob. I'm just answering your question.
1: Yeah. No, I'm not a host of decoding the gurus. I've been on the show, they've been on my show. Uh yeah. yeah, I I I you know, and and I I uh I have to say I find the podcast enjoyable, but uh I I uh I take your point that um you know, if you want to understand exactly what you were up to in talking about demons, you need to listen to the whole conversation you were having. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the uh and that's on YouTube, right? Yes, it is. It is um so uh let's we i know you've got to go in a few minutes but back to this uh issue of so is is, to what the problem is to some extent the the velocity of technological change now i know as i mentioned you have said one of the signs that there's a meaning crisis is people kind of Searching in things like video games and virtual space for the answer. And what I would ask is, like, well, maybe that's where the answer will have to be found. Uh, in other words, maybe there, there, there will be authentic and meaningful life in virtual worlds and in video game. You know, especially collaborative video games uh, where you're interacting with other people and not just killing fake zombies. Um, but uh, what, what, to what extent do you think that's going to inevitably? if at all, be part of the solution? I think
0: it. Ha- I think you're right. It has to be part of it. Uh, but I want to point out the continuity as well as, you're right to point out the discontinuity. This is new, but there's also continuity. We've always gone into special places where we imaginally, rather than virtually, created these imaginal spaces and these imaginal uh, pr- practices for trying to transform the self. And that's what a church is. That's what a mosque is. That's what a temple is. And that's what all the art and all the singing and all of that's doing. So there's continuity there. And this again, the legacy religions not seeing, to my mind, but they could, but they don't seem to be, seeing that virtuality could exactly be a continuity with that. It could be a place in which people can cultivate the kinds of transformations they're seeking. Now, one point about that, and then something about how I'm responding to exactly that. Notice that when, when, when people are going into these games, they're getting a lot of the things that they're not getting in their life. First of all, video games are, are, are wonderful machines for flow induction. They get you into the flow state very powerfully. Mm-hmm. The problem right now is many ways that, that's now that's not transfer-appropriate flow. So unlike the flow that I got in Tai Chi Chuan... That there was a phrase
1: transfer-appropriate? Yes,
0: transfer-appropriate. You want to learn it in a way that transfers to other domains oh, of your life. Okay. Now, that happens for some people, but the reverse also significantly happens. you got the WHO admitting there's such a thing as virtual addiction. I've had students in my courses write about, you know, people get into the flow state within the game that actually impairs them from finding it in their life, and they get into anti-flow depression in -hmm. their real life. And then the two exacerbate each other. You escape the depression by being in the flow in the game, and then the flow in the game exacerbates the depression in the world, and you can get that. So, there, you have to properly curate this domain in order to make it transfer appropriate. I think that is a very real possibility. What, what are, you, what are, what are people getting in these video games? They're getting the flow state. They're getting a normative dimension. They know how to self transcend. They know how to level up. They get, they get a nomological dimension. They know the rules. They, they can make sense of it. It's a coherent world. They have a narrative that gives them a sense of directionality, orientation, and purpose mm-hmm. that tells you what they're hungry for. But you got to feed it in a way, like the churches and the mosques and the temples used to do, that it doesn't stay in the game, that it transfers out into their life. Now I am just I am starting to work with people who are in the process of trying, and I I've been, and I think it's 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 very plausible they're succeeding in making a game that will exactly have those kinds of features and try to onboard people into the cultivation of wisdom and actually eventually joining communities, both online and in real life. So yes, it's there. I think we best pay attention to how it can go wrong in order to get an understanding of how it can go right. Tap into the, the what was already existing in the legacy religions and try and repurpose that, refunction that within the virtual world. But I think that has got to be part of the answer. Yes.
1: Okay. So final question, probably. Is about enlightenment. Yes. You know, that's a term that comes out of Eastern traditions. I mean, actually, uh, usually the word being translated might be more literally translated as awakening. But in any event, it's it's, it's a concept. It's an idea that, uh, and, and it exists. I would say both in the in this in the form of like, yes, ye, enlightenment is attainable, and in the form of this ideal that you know you'll never realize as a practical matter, but you understand what you're moving toward, which is more the way I think of it. But yes. do you take the idea of enlightenment in any sense, whether the traditional uh, sense or the traditional senses, or in some new kind of uh, synthetic sense that that you've developed, or anything? Is that a is that a concept for you, enlightenment?
0: It is, um, in that I do think there's a possibility of you know profound what I was talking about earlier, something like a, a very comprehensive. Systematic and systemic insight transformation. I, I studied those transformative experiences, those awakening experiences. Uh, but I, in the series, I explicitly say, let's not overfocus on that. We, I propose that we should reverse engineer enlightenment. I'm a cognitive scientist. We do reverse engineering. What are the perennial problems that beset human beings? And I say, what what we need to understand is, in, enlightenment has to be. That the you know that state and trait and self and character transformation that reliably and wisely allows people to address the perennial problems facing human beings around self-deception, alienation, absurdity, a- existential anxiety, self you know uh, you know self de- getting caught in self-deceptive systems and so self- mm-hmm. I, I propose reverse if we're going to use the term I'll, I'll, I'll even be a little bit more pushy. I don't really care about enlightenment if it doesn't address the perennial problems. So for me, I want to reverse engineer it. I want to use the best cognitive science. What are the interventions? What are the design principles for those interventions that have the best chance of alleviating um, and ameliorating these perennial problems? And if there is a transformation of consciousness and cognition that helps accelerate that, great. But that's what I want to call enlightenment.
1: Okay. I knew that wouldn't be quite the last question, but I think this is, you mentioned self-deception again. And I, I just like to get you to say, if you haven't quite said it yet, like what are the most problematic forms of self-deception I mentioned earlier two entirely, well, two different kinds, a, a more purely perceptual cognitive and and then something more about your, uh, your kind of mor- moral evaluation of yourself and other people. Um, what when you think of self-deception as a big problem, um, is, or is there a particular form of it that people would recognize as exemplifying the problem? Yeah, I think
0: I, I think the argument that is emerging that most of the rationality biases and most of the social psychological biases, like the attribution error as a social psychological, the confirmation bias as a rational bias, all are grounded in something like the my side bias. Uh, me and my side should mm-hmm. be privileged at all times, and that we skew what we find relevant and salient, and we we ignore uh, things that tend to um, challenge that bias. And that what you can then see is, again, I think it's not, I don't think it's too controversial to say, many of the legacy religions zero in on that as a focal thing that they are trying to challenge in some profound way.
1: Mm-hmm. While while sometimes manifesting the problems themselves. Of course, of <laughs> course. Of course. Um, the uh, so so you <clears throat> you see your work is fundamentally related to the much discussed like political polarization problem, the psychology of tribalism problem, whatever you want to whatever you yeah. want to call it.
0: Yes, I do. I do. Very okay. much. I think that's another important symptom of the meaning crisis.
1: Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I mentioned your video series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. What other uh, what other forms of your work would you plug or, or social media presences or whatever? Where would you send people?
0: Well, what I would ask people is, uh, I mean, take a look at some of the other things on my channel. My, my I do something similar like this. I do Voices with Ravakey where I talk to various people. Your, YouTube,
1: a, your YouTube channel? YouTube channel, okay. yeah.
0: I also do uh, the Cognitive Science Show where we have me and a bunch of other cognitive scientists talking about various topics in a in a dialogical fashion but most importantly ask people to keep an eye out for the next big series i'm going to do called after socrates uh, which is going to be released um, uh, the beginning of november
1: all right uh and you're not on twitter or anything i'm on twitter they can follow me on twitter
0: yep i'm on linkedin um i'm on facebook yes okay
1: good all right well thanks for taking the time i really enjoyed this I did too, Bob. It was a great pleasure. Great questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed the exchange. Great answers. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you.